And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. One of the educations you receive very quickly as a new aide in the White House is just how fraught the world is uh, in terms of potential threats and challenges. Uh, and it was a comfort to me that my uh, one of my colleagues was John Brennan, who was the Homeland Security Advisor to the President and now the CIA Director. Uh, director Brennan came by the Institute of Politics uh, the other day, the night before actually met with Donald Trump and the leaders of the intelligence community uh, to discuss the Russian hacking story. Uh, and we sat down to talk about his his life, his career, uh, and some of the very interesting current events. Uh, John Brennan, director of the CIA, welcome. Thank you, first of all, for coming to the Institute of Politics, and uh, thanks for your friendship over the years. We were colleagues in the White House, but I didn't... Uh, know then what I know now because of the research that uh, I was given before this conversation, that we had this thing in common, which is we're both the sons of immigrant uh, parents. Tell me about your dad. He was from Ireland. Uh, yes. Um, my dad, Owen Brennan, um, who uh, who passed away last week. Oh, no. I'm so sorry. Yeah. Um, in fact, I'm going to be uh, his uh, his wake and funeral is this weekend up in New Jersey. Lived to 96 and a half. Uh, tremendous inspiration and role model for me. Was a, a blacksmith and a farrier. Um, came to this country at the age of 28 in 1948. Um, loved this country. Uh, found a wonderful woman. Uh, raised a, a family. Um, had a, a work ethic that was second to none. Uh, and integrity and moral character that I, I wish I would, could be half the man my father was and who continues to be an inspiration to me. And you grew up in uh, Jersey City? I was born in Jersey City. I grew up in Hudson County, New Jersey, first West New York and then North Bergen, which is right across from Manhattan. I, uh, I have This is another uh, link we have here because my grandparents lived in Jersey City, so I spent a lot of time in Jersey City going to Greenspan's Deli. I don't know if you ever buy Greenspan's in Jersey City. I play a lot of basketball in Jersey City. I know. I wanted to ask you that. Jumping Jack is what I heard. Uh, And I I was surprised about that just because um, I've met you later in life and the knees are a little creaky now. Yeah, well, uh, after three hip replacements and one knee replacement and a number of, of uh, surgeries, uh, I don't have the same jumping capability <laughs> I had back then. But, uh, yeah, at uh, one point I was able to uh, to dunk and at uh, six foot. Uh, That's pretty was, good. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, basketball was my love when I was uh, young, and I always uh, hoped to have an NBA career. I think I'm, I may have decided that that might not be in the offing, but, uh, you know, I, I still uh, just love the game. There was a guy, he was a little bit older than us, Billy Cunningham, remember him oh, yes, from much so, yeah. Erasmus High School in Brooklyn, yeah, yeah. Uh, who was uh, also a huge leaper, uh, way beyond his size, yes. another Irish guy, yeah. another Irish leaper. <laughs> uh, and Catholicism was very fundamental in your... Yeah, um, well, I was raised in a very, uh, uh, not strict Catholic family, but a, a very... Uh, 
um, strong Irish Catholic family. Uh, my it was a it was a blue collar uh, lower middle class neighborhood, but uh, and my father was uh, and worked construction. But they would save up their money uh, so they could send me to Catholic school, and so I had Franciscan sisters in elementary school, Christian brothers in high school, and then Jesuits in college at Fordham University. And I, I joked that I was I was beaten and berated by you know many of the clergy <laughs> of, the, uh, of the Catholic Church, but it was a tremendous uh, educational experience for me. Uh, there was discipline. But there was also uh, a real uh, investment in uh, the moral fiber of uh, students. And I, was, uh, I always wanted to be the first American pope. That was what I really wanted to do up until uh, high school because I was planning to go into the seminary and then decided that that was not for me. Uh, but uh, and I, I don't it's have. A, the, it's actually tough to get that job. You know, <laughs> they, they don't give. Just, they don't just give it out. Yeah. So. And my, you know, I don't have the faith that I had when I was young. But I like to believe that I, I have the spirituality as well as the the moral compass that uh, I I developed uh, because of my family, my parents, my uh, my early schooling. Uh, that's something that continues to be my north star. Yeah, I should have asked. I, I don't want to leave your family without asking about your mom. Yeah, my mom is 95, and, and my they were married for 64 years. Uh, and uh, she is uh, in New Jersey still. Um, and uh, I have an older sister and a younger brother who are in the area where my mother uh, lives. Um, and my mother and father live together uh, in an assisted living facility. But uh, she was the, the daughter of uh, Irish uh, uh, immigrants. Uh, well, her grandparents were immigrants from Ireland, but uh, so it was. I had Irish on both sides. Um, a lot of singing and dancing. I understand. <laughs> yes, there there was quite a bit. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, your uh, our our friend uh, Dennis McDonough uh, was uh, with us a few weeks ago, and um, I talked to him about the new pope, who's a Jesuit. Yes, yeah. and uh, <laughs> and Dennis. Uh, 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 allowed what that meant uh, to him. Does has that? Have you first of all you interacted with the Pope at all? Well, yes, I was invited to the, the White House for the uh, when the Pope came and the arrival ceremony, and then I was introduced to him. And I remember vividly when I was uh, on the the line, and then when I got up to the the Pope and the President introduced me as the John Brennan Director of CIA, and I could see the Pope's eyebrows go up a little bit, and then the President immediately said, but he was Jesuit trained at Fordham, <laughs> and so the, the Pope gave a smile and you know, gave a warm handshake. Uh, but yeah, the, the Jesuits, uh, I had a number of Jesuits in, at, at Fordham University, and uh, especially on the philosophy courses, theology courses, uh, they really uh, did a lot in terms of my intellectual curiosity and really stimulated thought. Uh, I find the Jesuits to be a tremendous, tremendous intellects. Um, and so I, there's a, a special, I think, affinity to the Jesuits for those who were trained. Do you by see them. qualities in him that you recognize from those days, from the people who were your mentors? Well, I, I do in terms of um, the, uh, the, the interest in mankind, um, as well as uh, he is somebody who is is not attracted by grandeur uh, and worldly goods and material goods uh, and really has, I think, tried to uh, uh, share uh, the, the concept that we are all children of God 
Um, and we need to, I think, take stock of what is happening in our world. And I can remember a number of my, my Jesuits in college who really opened up my eyes to the world and got me out of my northern New Jersey, New York environment and made me understand that I am just one person of billions and we're sort of all in this together. Uh, so uh, the Pope is a, a very impressive individual. When you, uh, I want to, I want to follow that train of thought, but I just want to ask you one more question about him. Uh, when you guys do your analysis, I know he was deeply involved, for example, uh, on the Cuba issue and was an impetus for some of the work that the president did in terms of uh, beginning down that road. So about the Pope or Dennis McDonough, or both. <laughs> uh, well, b- both of them were active, That's but right, I'm, exactly. giving the, I'm giving the uh, Pope a, a little more credit because I think Dennis would insist. But uh, do you guys, when you do your analysis, I mean, do you look at the Pope as sort of a geopolitical figure? Do you, do you evaluate his impact? If, if he is weighing in on something, mm-hmm. um, and if he is looked to for... Um, um, his his thoughts or his involvement in something, he, yes. I mean, he is a he is a world figure, and if the Catholic Church, if the Vatican gets involved in some type of uh, you know uh, situation or crisis or whatever, but uh, it's not something that uh, you know we focus on in terms of. We don't have a pope. We're, we're not. Yeah, we're not collecting against the Vatican. Let me assure you about that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so you talked about the your eyes being open there. I, I'm interested in how. You made this journey. You you, you began to study uh, uh, different a different part of the world. You learned Arabic. Uh, how did that? That's a long way from Hudson County. It is. I, my cousin was in uh, AID, and he was the food for peace officer in Indonesia. And uh, he invited me to go out there uh, in the summer of my freshman year of college. So I was able to convince one of my political science professors to uh, allow me to do a tutorial. So at least I would get some credit for going out there and selling my toys. And uh, so I traveled out to Indonesia, was out there for about two months, uh, and did a, a paper on oil and politics in Indonesia. Traveled across Java, motorcycled across Java, then went to Bali, uh, spent a, a week there, uh, and and it was my first time out of the country, uh, aside from Ireland when I went when I was younger, and it really did open my eyes to different cultures, different religions, uh, and also gave me a sense of just how huge this world is and how diverse it is, which stimulated then my wanderlust, and that's when I went to American University in Cairo in my junior year uh, when I was at Fordham because I went back after Indonesia, went back to northern Jersey, was commuting back and forth to Fordham. And uh, my professor in sophomore year brought in a brochure. Uh, it was for the American University in Beirut, um, and I was planning to go there, but that was the year of the Civil War that AUB was closed down. So I then went to American University in Cairo. Never been to the Middle East before. It stimulated my interest in the region and the people and the language, and uh, that's when I then pursued Arabic in graduate school and Middle East studies and uh, led to my uh, postings then in the Middle East uh, but years. never, but but you weren't doing that with a mind toward working for the CIA. No, I, I just was trying to learn as much as I could about the world, um, and uh, I uh, I just enjoyed uh, seeing new things and experiencing new new cultures and new environments. Uh, and when I was in graduate school, I was in the doctoral program at the University of Texas. Uh, I got married uh, at a young age of twenty two. 
uh, and I think my wife was uh, a little bit concerned I was getting too comfortable as a graduate student. <laughs> and so I had, a, had an application from the CIA uh, because I saw an advertisement in the New York Times that I sent in my resume for. And since I had some overseas travel, they said, well, why don't you pursue graduate studies? And if you have an interest in the CIA, send this application in. So as I said, my wife was uh, concerned that I wasn't pulling my weight. And she said, send that application to the CIA, <laughs> which I did. And I didn't know what I was going to encounter. Uh, but they, they offered me a job because I, I did have you know some Arabic and overseas experience. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I started the agency in operations uh, and then had an opportunity to serve an interim assignment on the analytics side, and I felt that was a better match for me. Uh, So I I spent most of my career at the agency on the analytics side and went back and forth between operations, though. So so analyzing raw data and interpreting their meaning, its meaning? Uh, Reading reports that Mm -hmm. were sent in uh, to Langley from the State Department and others and uh, from intelligence that we acquired from uh, sources and uh, evaluating that and then writing uh, reports for the president. Synthesizing it. Yeah, and putting it together. And I I found that something that I, I enjoyed. I enjoyed writing. I enjoyed briefing. Uh, and I had the opportunity to go out pretty early in my agency career, uh, serving a rotation with the State Department uh, at the American Embassy in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. Uh, back in the early 80s, the, uh, the embassies were in Jeddah, not Riyadh. Uh, so I was out there for two years. So my wife and I went out there before children, and I went to a six-month tutorial Arabic. Uh, and so my Arabic was pretty good uh, at the time. And just traveled a lot, went, out with, went off with the tribes for uh, a week, uh, did a lot of hiking and camping, went down to Yemen, and just really enjoyed experiencing a life uh, outside of northern New Jersey. Yeah, you couldn't get as far from northern New Jersey uh, <laughs> as that. You, when, you, uh, when you first joined the CIA, the CIA had had a rough decade in the 70s uh, because of some of the scandals surrounding uh, President Nixon, and uh, there was a whole reevaluation of the how intelligence was done and managed and overseen. Um, did, that, did that give you any pause? Had you, were you aware of it? Were you? I, w- I was, because when I was at the University of Texas, in fact, we had some uh, former uh, CIA officers who would speak uh, at, the, at UT, and some of them were quite critical of the agency. I remember Phil Pagey came down there one time. Uh, and uh, that was after the, the Church and, and Pike Committee hearings that uh, looked at uh, some of the uh, CIA activities uh, that needed to be cleaned up. And that's when they, the Congress decided to have oversight committees in both the House and the Senate, uh, and appropriately so. Uh, so, uh, you know, was I attracted to CIA because of what it stood for at the time? Uh, I had an interest in CIA because when I was young, I found out that Nathan Hale the uh, America's first spy was hanged on September 22nd in 1776. I was born on September 22nd, 1955. So I remember when I was reading my history book and I saw that he was hanged on that date, it just stuck in my mind. I said, maybe, you know, I will be a spy like Nathan Hale, but I won't, hopefully I won't have the same ending. Yeah, that would, that, I was going to say that. That's a little grim, actually, when you think about it. You, um, you talked when you spoke to our students a, f- a few minutes ago. You talked about the fact that one of your early um, mentors, uh, Robert Ames, was was killed um, in uh, the embassy uh, attack in Beirut in 1983. Uh, 
Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, Bob Ames is a special person. Uh, there was a book that was written about him uh, two years ago or so uh, called The Good Spy by Kai Bird. And it, he was somebody who uh, worked in the Middle East, uh, was a very good Arabist, worked with Palestinians, uh, lived in Yemen. Uh, he was an operations officer for most of his career. And then, uh, toward the end of his career, uh, he became the head of the analytic office uh, that was responsible for the Near East and South Asia. That was the office that I was in before I went out to Saudi Arabia the first time. And when I was studying Arabic for those six months, uh, I would frequently go into the office on the weekends, uh, and he would be there, and he would test me in my Arabic. And it was, he was a, a master Arabist. Uh, I was a, a rather you know, novice uh, Arabist at the time. And uh, I really came to respect and admire him. And so uh, that's why when he was uh, 49 and he was uh, on travel to the Middle East uh, and he was uh, at the embassy in Beirut, uh, he was in the stairwell when the, uh, that bomb went off, the truck bomb, and he was killed uh, instantly. And it was six months before retirement. And uh, his, uh, his wife and, and family then were, were left without Bob and... His star is one of those on the memorial wall, one of the 117. And every year when we have our memorial ceremony, uh, many of the family members of those stars come back uh, year after year after year. And uh, Bob's wife and uh, some of his sons come back. Uh, so uh, he is somebody who made such an imprint on me because he was such a, uh, a specialist uh, in intelligence. He was a tremendous Arabist. And he was somebody who I think had the the integrity and uh, professional uh, talent that uh, I wanted to emulate. You, uh, we had, by the way, um, also fairly recently Steve Kerr, the coach of the Golden State Warriors, and you know his mm-hmm. father Malcolm Kerr yes. was right. uh, assassinated yeah. in, uh, in in the eighties, um, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, a uh, an admirable public servant in his in his own right Absolutely. so how does it how did you process that then did that was that the first kind of loss that you experienced yeah i was i remember being in the embassy in my office when the names of the killed were coming across uh, in cable and uh i saw robert ames and i said oh maybe there's somebody at that embassy who also is named robert ames you know bob ames would be out there because he's back at headquarters and uh, when I found out that it was him, it was a tremendous shock. Um, and it, it made very real the conflict, the violence, the bloodshed that was going on, because he was the first person that I, I knew uh, personally uh, who died at the hands of, of terrorists. Uh, I have known many others since then. But that was a very uh, profound uh, event in my life. It, and it, it made me, I think, uh, maybe redouble my interest in the Middle East um, because of the uh, uh, <clears throat> the example he set uh, for me. As uh, roiled as the Middle East was then, it's uh, in many ways more so now. I think that's fair to say. Um, where Where is this all going? Uh, you, I'm asking you this now because you have deep expertise in this region, but, um, you know, there's enormous anxiety obvi- for obvious reasons. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering what you foresee. 
I foresee more challenges ahead. Unfortunately, I see, foresee more violence and bloodshed. Uh, the Middle East is going through a very, very difficult phase of its history. And the Arab Spring, I thought, you know, brought to the fore uh, a lot of issues that needed to be addressed because there, there was repression in so many of these countries, uh, authoritarian rulers who didn't take into account the interests of their citizens. Uh, corruption uh, still runs rampant in many, many countries. And uh, we should not be just addressing the uh, symptoms of the problems, the violence, the terrorism, the extremism. We really have to get to those underlying factors and condition that, that contribute to them. So it's the institutions of governance. It is the economic reforms that need to take place so that there can be opportunities for individuals to take, to be part of a, of a modern-day economy, uh, to be able to have the opportunity to uh, vote for their their uh, the government leaders. Uh, they need to be able to uh, have the type of education and schooling that they need in order to gain the skills to participate in a modern economy. Uh, their judicial systems need to be revamped. Uh, so I know that there's a lot of focus, and CIA does focus a lot because that's our responsibility on preventing those terrorist attacks, and we try to strengthen the security and intelligence services, which is very important. But you have to look behind in uh, the pointy end of the spear. You have to uh, have the reforms, the political reforms, the economic reforms, uh, the this disparity in wealth that continues to exist out there. And when I see the growth in terms of the numbers of people, the increasing urbanization, uh, and so the, the next uh, decade or more is going to be uh, um, very, uh, very uh, challenging for a lot of these countries. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back with Director John Brennan. You know, I, I listen to you, uh, and I thoroughly agree with you, but the mood uh, of Americans is very much, uh, or, or many Americans, very much inward-looking. Uh, now, there is a sense that this is their problem, and why do we have to get uh, involved in it, the, the issue of resources and how much there's the age-old thing about foreign aid, and uh, which is less than 1% of the budget, but most Americans think it's a quarter of the budget. Um, so at a time when you you say that things are, does it, I mean, you must have this concern about the fact that we have to make more investments at a time when people are inclined to make less. Yeah, and I think we have to recognize that this is a tremendously interconnected world. And what happens overseas has uh, impact on on us here in the United States, uh, both in terms of our national security as well as our economy. And we cannot isolate ourselves. And those oceans do not protect us from the influence of foreign events and developments. And, and I think about American exceptionalism in a, a uh, in a different way than a lot of people. Uh, when people talk about American exceptionalism, I don't think we're certainly any better than anybody else. Uh, but we have had exceptional good fortune because of this great, bountiful country and our resources and our history and our experience. And we are the world's lone superpower. We really are. Um, and as a result of that exceptional good fortune, I think we have exceptional responsibilities to do what we can to try to bring uh, a semblance of peace and order to the rest of the world. 
and so retracting from that American uh, involvement overseas and uh, trying to just focus on ourselves, I think, uh, misses two things. One is misses the, the fact that we cannot isolate ourselves from global events. They have direct impact on us. And number two, if we're going to continue to be the world's greatest democracy and superpower, we need to make sure that we do what we can in order to uh, help the rest of the world, because we are citizens of this world. Uh, and I, I don't think that we should uh, turn away from the problems uh, that are beyond our borders, because um, we are a country made up of people who have come from many, many parts of the world, uh, and I think we need to do our part. And I think our part is a lot larger than uh, other countries. And you talk about the need for um, for um, go- uh, for good governance and other reforms in many of these uh, countries. Uh, but uh, we also, you also have sectarianism uh, that is uh, that often overwhelms uh, the 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 desire the impulse for governance or at least the goal of of governance and that's we've seen raging in the region it seems more intense now the autocrats the one thing they seem to be able to do was repress that and so uh how, how do you overcome that yeah it's interesting when you look at on the global stage right now there is both the rise and demise of nationalism and national identity there are a number of countries uh, where there is tremendous growth of, of nationalism from the standpoint of we don't want our identity, our nationality, to be um, diluted. We've seen a little of that here, you know. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, yes, and we're seeing it in Europe as well. And it's the reaction to uh, you know, more flows of immigration or whatever. But in a lot of other countries, you have a demise of that national identity, uh, Right now, when I look across the Middle East, as well as Africa and South Asia, there are more and more people who identify with their tribe, with their religion, with their ethnic group, and not with the concept of being a Yemeni or being a Libyan. They are a Misraten, or they are something else, or they're a Shia or a Sunni. And that just feeds these tensions, these sectarian and other tensions that really undermine the concept of a nation-state. So you're you're seeing a a pull in different directions here. And I I am concerned that if people are giving up on the nation-state concept in a lot of these countries, there's going to be more conflict because people are going to try to stake out what their interests are as part of that subgroup, that subnational group. While at the same time, you have this increasing nationalism that is more and more antagonistic to those groups. So when I look out over the next decade or two, that both the rise and demise of nationalism, I think, is going to come into direct more tension, and particularly with the uh, the flows of, of people and populations. And it's not just because of conflict and civil strife. You know, I look at the displacement because of lack of economic opportunity, increasing uh, displacement of people because our our coasts are being climate reclaimed change. as a result of climate change, exactly, yeah. which is going to lead to greater population flows. So we need to be looking at how we're going to give people a reason to stay where they are and to be able to develop uh, opportunities in their countries uh, and be able to work together as, as, as uh, governments. 
Let me just return to your biography for a second because this is related to this discussion, Iraq. And the, you were at the CIA uh, during the run-up to the war in Iraq. And you d- address this with uh, the audience you just spoke to of students mm-hmm. uh, here. Uh, there are those who would argue, I think the president has made the argument, that the decision to go there, um, and he made, you've probably read his speech Remarkable speech. He was a state senator at the time, uh, and he said that uh, he was worried that this would unleash sectarian forces and uh, a war of undetermined length and cost and consequences. Um, I, I know that uh, the president-elect has been critical of the intelligence uh, at that time, but you yourself uh, were critical, and you said in there that uh, there are times when uh, policymakers who want to achieve a goal cherry-pick their intelligence to try and support that goal. Uh, Is that what happened there? I think that uh, there were individuals in the Bush administration who were determined to uh, have this Iraq policy and an invasion of Iraq because they felt as though Saddam Hussein was a... uh, a real threat to regional stability as well as to the United States. You didn't feel that way? I felt he certainly was a disruptive force, uh, but I didn't feel that he was uh, had posed that type of, of threat. This is where, and I was also talking about capabilities and intentions, and you see someone's military capabilities grow, but there was no indication that Saddam Hussein was going to use, even if he had BW or CW in large quantities at the time, to use it in order to carry out you know, another invasion or whatever. I think President Bush um, at that time was, was misserved by people around him. It's a responsibility of the people around the president to make sure that the president gets the full array of information and intelligence and not to cherry pick it in order to get the president to agree and support a certain policy path. Uh, and that's where intelligence is particularly important that we don't just respond to a leading question, that we want to make sure, especially that the president has a full understanding and appreciation of what the, the risks, the opportunities are of different policy courses. By the way, how, how important are these uh, presidential daily briefings? Very, very important. Uh, the, the information in them um, is something that I think every president, uh, certainly going back to Nixon, uh, uh, has valued uh, because it will allow them to see uh, developments, see trends, see uh, situations that require the president's attention. Uh, and presidents receive the information in different ways. You know, some would want to get fully briefed on the book. Some would want to, you know, read the book first and then have a discussion. But I think staying abreast of the intelligence picture is important for any and every president. So the obvious question is, uh, does it concern you that the president-elect has not been a regular consumer of these briefings? I, I know that the, the, the president-elect between Election Day and Inauguration Day is consumed with a lot of things, and I would not presume that uh, they um, should take a briefing every day. I think it should be a regular occurrence, certainly. 
but the president-elect is still just the president-elect. Um, I do think it's going to be very important for the president, the new president on Inauguration Day, to have a regular uh, engagement with the intelligence community and with the intelligence product and the PDB. Absolutely. One of the, one of the very freighted issues that came up during that period and uh, may have led to you leaving the agency for a period of time uh, was the issue of enhanced interrogation tactics and this whole debate over water waterboarding and some of the other techniques you you had concerns about those at the time i was of 911 and the aftermath i was the uh, deputy executive director of cia which is basically the equivalent of a deputy chief operating officer so i was not in the chain of command for it but yet i was still a member of the senior leadership team and I had expressed my concerns about them at the time to some individuals uh, on the seventh floor of CIA. But I didn't, you know, hit my fist on the table. I didn't, uh, you know, push the issue um, because it was a program that the President of the United States had authorized. It was a program that the Department of Justice had repeatedly reviewed for its legality. It was a program that a lot of people felt was essential to be able to prevent al-Qaeda from carrying out another type of attack. And so I wasn't uh, privy to a lot of the details uh, of you know, how it was being conducted. Looking back on it now, do I wish I would have um, spoken up more? Yes, absolutely. And so my reservations were expressed, but they were not expressed with the force that I think that I... Uh, should have. Then you were, and I was there for a period of time when you were uh, the president's uh, homeland security advisor in the White House, and you were an advocate for the steps that he took to uh, ban some of these uh, techniques. Uh, you know, uh, I, I'm, I'm sure you've been following closely this debate over whether some of them should be um, reinstated. Uh, Donald Trump said during the campaign that you know the, the people were fighting or chopping off heads, and you know we ought to go back to doing waterboarding and some of these other things. Uh, what's the argument against that? Well, I'm also glad that uh, Donald Trump, when he listened to General Mattis, uh, seemed to adjust his view about waterboarding and some of these EITs. Uh, I do believe that the Army Field Manual provides the uh, the necessary uh, foundation for the interrogation and debriefings. Uh, the CIA uh, was damaged quite a bit as a result of the experience with the EITs. Um, I don't think it's something that we as an organization should be involved in. I don't think it's necessary. Um, uh, one can never establish cause and effect. Um, I, I know a lot of my CIA colleagues, uh, current and former, may disagree. Uh, but because somebody was subjected to an enhanced interrogation technique and subsequently provided uh, accurate information does not mean that that was the only way to get that information, nor was it causative as far as what prompted an individual to ultimately give it up. Uh, and we know that uh, individuals who were subjected to the EITs also gave a lot of false information and false leads. Uh, so to, avoid, to avoid them. To, yes, just to, to get them to stop. That's Senator McCain's argument. Yeah. Uh, but um, there's another element, isn't there, which is the impact it has on 
uh, on our own security and on the security of troops in the field and, uh, and on the general tenor of the struggle uh, as a propaganda tool. Yeah, and it has been used as a propaganda tool. Um, I would say that the the terrorists don't uh, play by the same rules that we do. Uh, we shouldn't stoop to their tactics. Uh, just the way we shouldn't stoop to the tactics that the Russians use against our elections, we shouldn't stoop to the tactics that terrorists use. Uh, and uh, I, I do think that it uh, is counterproductive because it can be used against us. I, I don't find that it has, uh, you know, it is the only way or even the way to, to get that information. Uh, the CIA is no longer in the detention business, much less the EIT business. Uh, I think that is appropriate. Uh, but I do remember also in the aftermath of 9-11 when there was this great concern about the follow-on waves of attacks it was considered to be an existential threat to this country. And there were individuals who really were concerned that al-Qaeda had biological and chemical weapons they were going to use, and there were going to be another series of devastating attacks here. And a lot of people, well-meaning and motivated people, um, thought that these EITs were the only way to get this information. So um, there was, the time was different. Um, so looking back on it, uh, it's, it's, I think, easier to say that it never should have happened. But uh, the, uh, when, the, when the President of the United States gives the CIA an order, I must tell you that CIA officers um, try to salute. Uh, that's why after 9-11, CIA boots were the first boots on the ground in Afghanistan within two weeks. The first American to die in Afghanistan after 9-11 was a CIA officer, Mike Spann. Your uh, passion for the agency is palpable. It was clear you, you gave a great tribute to the men and women who do this work when you spoke to these uh, young people. How did you feel when you read some of the tweets of the president-elect uh, disparaging the work of the, uh, of the intelligence community and pointing back to Iraq suggesting the intelligence community got that wrong, so why should we trust them on this Russia piece? Mm. Well, I, I attribute it to the president-elect's lack of understanding about what the intelligence community does and our profession and just how important it is. Uh, there have been a lot of changes uh, since the Iraq WMD issue. Uh, we have revamped uh, a lot of the practices and procedures and the reviews that we do. I think the quality of the product is much stronger. I think our capabilities are greater. Uh, and I, I tell our workforce, uh, those that may be reading those tweets or reading the press accounts, to make sure that they recognize that they now have a special responsibility to try to inform the new president about the, the global landscape as well as what it is that we know, what it is we assess. So I am very much hoping and counting on uh, the new administration, new president, to treat the intelligence community and the CIA and the people of the CIA with the utmost respect they can challenge our work, uh, and the president-elect, uh, when he becomes president, can certainly uh, disagree with uh, our assessments and our views. But uh, at a minimum, uh, our, our work, our sacrifices, our contributions to this country's security needs to be recognized, appreciated, and respected. If that is not the case, if that doesn't happen, what are the consequences of that? I heard one of your uh, colleagues at the Senate hearing today suggest uh, that, there, that 
that he feared that people, good people, would leave uh, leave the uh, intelligence community because they because they'd become discouraged. That's certainly uh, possible because um, our people work more than a forty-hour week. Uh, many, many of them could make much more money on the outside, uh, but they serve at the agency because they really believe in the importance of the work and they believe in the mission. And if they feel as though that is not being appreciated or recognized or utilized, why would they uh, make all those sacrifices, put their lives at risk, do the things that they do for their fellow Americans if they're not going to be... Uh, what would the consequences for the country be? I think they could be very, very serious, obviously. And the the, the new administration uh, and any president needs to recognize that uh, this is a, a challenging and dangerous world and that the intelligence community and intelligence professionals can help to keep this country safe and uh, protect our national security interests. Uh, and any president or administration that does not uh, recognize that is one that is putting this country's national security at great risk and peril. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with Director Brennan. One of the proposals uh, that... Uh, apparently, the new administration is considering, according to the Wall Street Journal, is the um, uh, elimination of, or at least uh, the uh, the slimming down of the intelligence community. Maybe the elimination, not uh, not the elimination of the intelligence, but the, of the DNI, the Director uh, uh, of Intelligence. That that was a position created in response to nine eleven, a coordinating position. Uh, I think they've disavowed that. In fact, I think Sean Spicer said today that that's 100% inaccurate or whatever. And the, there is a report that the, that President-elect Trump is going to name Dan Coates, uh, former senator from Indiana, as the new director of national intelligence. You have confidence in him? He is somebody who has been on the Intelligence uh, Oversight Committee in the Senate. Uh, he's somebody who has taken his, uh, his responsibility there very seriously. He appreciates and applauds the work that we have done. I have enjoyed my association with, with him. I think he is somebody who uh, would, would serve that position well. You, worked, uh, you also worked with General Flynn uh, when he was in his uh, position uh, at the Defense Intelligence Agency, and he uh, was removed, I think, during your tenure uh, there. Um, what was your sense of him and his appreciation for uh, the the use of the the importance of intelligence and its appropriate use? He was the director of DIA, uh, Defense Intelligence Agency DIA mm-hmm. when I was the director of CIA. We testified together. I think he tried to do some things inside of DIA to be able to uh, take advantage of their capabilities and authorities. Um, as as an intelligence officer, and he was an intelligence officer for most of his military career, I think he recognizes the importance of it. And I'm hoping that as National Security Advisor, he is going to take full advantage of the intelligence community's capabilities. So we'll have to see. But uh, Mike Flynn, uh, given his overseas experience uh, in the war zones and his familiarity with the intelligence mission, uh, I would find it, uh, I'd be flabbergasted if he shunned intelligence. Mm-hmm. You, you, so what, what is the deal uh, with Russia? You've got a report coming out next week, and I don't expect you to be too forthcoming about uh, its contents. But 
there's a lot that's on the public record already, including the fact that you and all of your uh, colleagues in the intelligence community are of one, uh, one mind that Russia did uh, involve itself uh, in our election. And as you pointed out in this group, they've also involved themselves in elections all over Europe, great concern in Germany about that. What, what is the ultimate end game uh, for them in this sort of campaign of disruption? Well, I think what uh, Mr. Putin seeks to do, and the intelligence agencies are his instruments to accomplish, is to shape the outcomes of elections so that uh, the results will be more conducive to Russian interests. We have seen it happen in a number of places uh, in terms of trying to work with corrupt politicians or using uh, media uh, sources uh, to, uh, to skew the perception uh, of uh, voters uh, as well as the, the playing field. So uh, this is something that uh, will be coming out in this report. Uh, we have great confidence in our understanding, our knowledge, and our assessment of, of what took place. There are some things that we don't know, but there's a lot that we do know. And uh, it's important for that to be exposed, uh, not just for future elections here, so that safeguards can be taken, but also for other governments to recognize that the, the Russians, as well as others, uh, can exploit uh, elections for their own purposes and objectives. And he's been pretty successful. He's had a pretty good year, has he not? One might claim he does, yes. He, he might claim he does. He, he, and his... Uh, many-hour press conference recently, he did say that uh, he appreciated, uh, you know, sort of all the support for his grand accomplishments. Uh, I don't think what he has accomplished in Syria is something that he should uh, take uh, pride in. Uh, they devastated that country, uh, carried out uh, attacks uh, without concern, my view, f uh, for uh, innocent civilians being killed. He just supported the Bashar Assad regime. So uh, has he been able to um, advance some of his uh, relationships with uh, foreign countries? Yes. Uh, has he tried to take advantage of perceptions of uh, U.S. Uh, lack of leadership? Yes. Um, so uh, has he been able to interfere in an election here? Uh, yes. Uh, but... He also is being exposed for what he is doing. You mentioned Syria. I spent, I've spent time with the president, obviously, and didn't get a chance to talk to him when we did one of these conversations a few weeks back. But obviously Syria is a painful uh, episode. Episode would be too um, diminishing. It, it, it's a disaster. Uh, it's a humanitarian disaster. Um, and you speak about Russia's role in it. One debate that will go on forever is, could the U.S. have done something else? Uh, president said in his press conference, we send, the only thing we could have done is send in large numbers of troops, and then we would have been there, and we would have been there for a very, very long time. Um, what could have been done? You know, looking back, you know, there's so many hypotheticals there. Uh, if we know, if we knew then what we know now in terms of what ISIL was able to do in terms of just this explosive growth in Iraq that then is able to lop over into Syria, um, would we have pursued the same course? Probably not. Um, ISIL didn't exist 
when the Arab Spring erupted in Syria. Uh, and if, if additional support was provided uh, by uh, various uh, international actors to the Free Syrian Opposition, Free Syrian Army early on, might that have made a difference? Maybe. Because uh, at that time, the Syrian regime was reeling mm-hmm. and uh, it was more vulnerable. Yet, the opposition in Syria, even in those early days and certainly over time, was a very eclectic one. There were those who were secular. There were those who were uh, former members of the, of the military. Uh, and then there were ones that were on the extremist end of the spectrum. And uh, supporting uh, the opposition uh, blindly and throwing weapons uh, over the transom uh, into Syria could have led to a worse outcome than today. Which was the president's expressed concern. And that's what he was concerned about, that uh, we really need to have a better understanding before uh, providing support or military support. There's also issues of international law that we try to you know, respect and honor. Um, just because Russia doesn't respect and honor it when it comes to things like Ukraine, uh, there needs to be a, a legal basis, an international legal basis for any type of military intervention. And when the Russians were opposed to it, uh, that was the difference in the Balkans. Um, so there were opportunities there to, to do something on the military front. But absent a U.N. Security Council resolution to go in unilaterally, basically, and to try to dislodge a, a government, a recognized government, uh, that has uh, implications for, for future uh, actions. On- you said if we could, if we could have force, uh, seen what was going to happen, um, is that an intelligence failure? I say it's, you know, there, uh, this issue of intelligence failure, um, what happens in the world is a result of, of so many things. Um, what we do, what the Russians do, has tremendous Im- implications for what uh, events unfold in places like Syria or Iraq. You can never anticipate, as an intelligence professional, what your government is going to do, <laughs> because especially in the United States, I mean, that has an impact. Uh, did we not see uh, that the Iraqi military was going to fold in the face of, of ISIL as quickly as it did? Yeah, we didn't. Um, it, was, it was after the, the withdrawal of, of U.S. military there, the Iraqi forces, especially in the north, were basically Shia forces, and they were quickly overrun by the remnants of uh, the, the Sunni elements of the Iraqi army that became part of, of ISIL, Daesh. Uh, so it had this momentum, and it had this engine that we didn't You know what some in Congress would say is that if we hadn't withdrawn the 25,000 troops or uh, some number of troops, if we had left some number of troops there, that that, that would have been forestalled? Well, I think if we left some tr- number of troops there, the history would have been different. I'm not saying that ISIL wouldn't have ultimately grown. But we would have had some serious decisions to make if we continued to have a military presence there and advisors in different parts of the country. Uh, and so, yeah, people can make an argument that it was because of that withdrawal that led to that, that quick dissolution of the Iraqi military that uh, ISIL was able to take advantage of. And do you believe that? I don't believe it was the reason for it. I think it was a, a contributing factor to the subsequent events that took place because we were not there. 
and uh, we weren't able to do the training, we weren't able to do the advising and the assisting. Um, might it have turned out worse if we were there? Yeah. Might we have lost you know, hundreds of U.S. military uh, at the time? Might it have become even more of a rallying cry for ISIL? Yeah. So it's, it's so hard to determine. But history would have been different. Without a doubt, it would have been different. Just jumping back, one more question on Iraq. Uh, how different would history be if, uh, if we hadn't gone in the first place in 2003? If we hadn't gone into Iraq, oh, it'd be tremendously different. The Middle East would not look like it does today. Uh, I do think that was the the reason why there was the tremendous slide into violence and bloodshed uh, in that part of the world that um, raged in Iraq for many years, and now ISIL is the outgrowth of of that. Saddam Hussein was a brutal dictator and uh, a killer. He had repressed a lot of that um, animosity, tension, anger, and violence. Uh, but And by taking him away, without having then the ability to replace him or, or, or to succeed him with something that was going to be able to allow the successful war to give birth to a peace and an enduring political system is the reason why Iraq um, imploded and the impact then on Syria uh, was was felt. So the history of the region would have been much different. Would it have, you know, would the Arab Spring have been different? Yes, it would have been different as well. Um, I'm not saying it would have been better, <laughs> And who knows, Saddam Hussein might have decided to use those capabilities uh, against uh, another uh, neighbor. But after he was pushed out of Kuwait in the 90s, I think he, and yes, he was a, a pain in the butt. Yeah. Uh, it's a podcast, say whatever you want. <laughs> he, uh, but I, I do believe that um, what was unleashed as a result of that invasion was something that led to um, a Middle East uh, of greater violence and bloodshed and chaos. And now we're still picking up the pieces from it. You know, you mentioned uh, Egypt earlier, and I remember those uh, those people in the square and filled with hope for democracy uh, and uh, the events that followed the Muslim Brotherhood uh, winning the election uh, and uh, ultimately being over, over uh, turned when they governed in a in a brutal uh, and anti-democratic way. And now you have essentially another strongman uh, in Egypt. Is, is there a future for democracy in that region? <laughs> yeah, I, and I think there were very, very unrealistic expectations in Washington, including in some parts of the administration, that the Arab Spring was going to push out these authoritarian regimes and democracy is going to flourish because that's what people want. They want freedom. They want liberty. Not so much. Uh, they want it for themselves or their group or their tribe. Um, but the concept of democracy is something that really is not uh, ingrained in a lot of the, the people and the cultures and the countries out there. And so as we saw with the Muslim Brotherhood, um, they wanted to uh, 
displaced Mubarak. Uh, they wanted to gain uh, political power and influence, but they didn't want to do it so that our concept of democracy was going to then take root. It was their version and their vision of what an Egypt should look like. And that's what I think we have to be very careful about, is not thinking that this great country of ours, of 240 years of experience, we're still working on this whole democratic principle. And quite, I must tell you, sometimes I question <laughs> democracy, as, as uh, Samantha Power says, you know, a democracy is the worst form of government apart from all others. Yes. And when I think Stole about... Stole that from Churchill, but yeah. Yes, 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 yeah. Uh, but um, when I think about uh, what's going on in so many countries, th- th- and if everybody was to have a vote, um, I don't know whether or not the uh, the resultant uh, government would, uh, which I believe the government's have responsibility, would protect the rights of the minority. To me, that's what democracy is all about, that the government that is elected and the people and the officials that are elected, it's not just to promote the interests of those who elected that government. It's to ensure that those voices of the individuals of the minority are going to be safeguarded and protected. As you leave and as we leave, uh, let me ask you, what what do you uh, – what's your greatest apprehension about the future uh, and what gives you hope? And give us a little hope, man, because I don't want to leave just on the uh, apprehension. Uh, I think that uh, a number of countries um, around the globe are going to face real challenges in terms of meeting uh, even the minimum requirements of their people in terms of uh, what they need to exist, um, their their economic interests, their political interests, um, and that the institutions of governance in these countries are not up to the task, and that the officials or the the government leaders in many of these countries are not um, skilled uh, enough or capable enough in order to navigate very, very difficult waters, and that uh, corruption uh, continues to exist, and that undermines the very fabric of of the systems of governance, so um, and and terrorist organizations are able to attract the downtrodden, the disenfranchised, those that have given up hope, uh, and uh, I, I see this this wave not subsiding yet. Um, and when I think about what we have over the next decade, um, I, I worry. At the same time, when I when I look at the history of the the world in the last couple of centuries, they have been. You know, challenges in the past that um, because of man's innovation and evolution and development, uh, industrial revolution, technology, communication, we are able to find ways to uh, advance the human condition. And I'm hoping that with some of these capabilities and breakthroughs uh, in, in ways that we can't even envision today, that we'll be able to nourish people and it's not going to require arable land. It's not going to require uh, you know, rainfall. That there are going to be ways to at least take care of the very minimum basic requirements in order for people to live. So I have great hope in science and technology and uh, great hope that this country's uh, great private sector and scientific and technological community are going to find ways that will be able to arrest this uh, 
this downward slope in so many areas of uh, the, the human condition and so that we're not going to have the suffering and the humanitarian disasters and the, the conflict and the violence. Uh, I don't know if there's a way to uh, prevent terrorists from using weapons and using, you know, uh, fabricating IEDs. Uh, so with every, every technological innovation, the terrorists and the evildoers find ways to exploit it. Um, I'd like to think that ultimately we're going to find a way to uh, use this uh, man's ingenuity to uh, to reverse the course of, uh, of some way any of these uh, these trends. And for you, what what's next? Uh, on the twentieth of January at noon, I will no longer be the director of CIA. Um, I can't think of a better job ever than the director of CIA. So I will do something else. Uh, I want to reintroduce myself to my family reintroduce myself to American culture. I don't know when the last time I saw a movie. <laughs> uh, sleep. Um, and then continue to be involved. Uh, I, I'd like... Uh, I've spent a lot of time on national security issues. I'm, I'm not going to be silent. Uh, I to do some writing, speaking, um, commentating, or whatever uh, from the sidelines. Uh, Without constraints, that would be... That'll be fun. Well, I like to think that there, you know, there's some self-imposed constraints. Yes, I, well, I, I expect want to, that. I want to be respectful uh, of, of those who I may criticize. Uh, and one of the things I'm very concerned about is the, uh, the discourse that is taking place right now. And uh, I was very fortunate to grow up in a household where uh, politeness was something that uh, my mother and father instilled in me and the, the nuns and Christian brothers and, and being courteous. Uh, and when I look at some of the, the political uh, environments uh, and the, uh, the language that is used uh, and the, the words... Um, I, I, I despair, and so I'm hoping that uh, that discourse is going to elevate. Well, let me just say you made a very important point in a very polite way there, I thought. <laughs> and uh, I will finish by saying what I've said to you and what I've said to others before, which is in the two years that I was at the White House, I always slept better knowing that you never slept. <laughs> and I appreciate that, and I appreciate all the service that you've given this country. Well, thank you very much, David. It's a privilege to be here, and I enjoy seeing you and talking to you. Thank, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.